you're here worshiping with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would open them with me to the book of Acts. Acts is in the New Testament. Um, We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find it printed in your bulletin. We're we're beginning a new series uh, this spring that's most likely going to bleed into the summer uh, to some degree. Uh, But it's not on the book of Acts. It's actually in, in the book of Romans. And, and Romans in the history of, a ch- of the church has, it, it's, it has a beautiful, has a very powerful history in the church. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, men like John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, um, Martin Luther, uh, who was one of the reformers, and Augustine, who was a really early church father, all of them in talking about their conversion experience, what was it that really awakened them? What was it that that caused them to see the, the good news of the gospel that we all celebrate. And you know what they all said? And they all said it was the book of Romans. They said that's what did it for them. That's what ministered most to them. That's, that's what con- truly converted them in their life. And so the question for us is, is why is Romans you know, such a powerful book to, to so many people? And the answer is, is actually found in our passage this morning. It's Acts 9. And we all love prequels. And so if, if this spring and this summer is going to be our mini-series in Romans, then Acts 9 is, is our prequel this morning. Here's, here's how it all began. Here's why Romans is so powerful. Let's look, look at Acts 9 together. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. And then we're going to end with Romans 1, 1. This is God-breathed. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Romans 1.1 Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Let's pray together. O Lord, we are blind and we are helpless. And that's not us being pitiful about ourselves, Lord. That's us affirming what the gospel says about ourselves. And that unless the Spirit show up, Spirit, unless you minister to us, unless you tweak our heart, cause the scales to fall from our eyes, unstop our ears, we will lack understanding. And so we would ask for just that this morning. Spirit, would you descend upon us? Would you fill our empty sails? Would you truly encourage us and cause us to see the truth of your Scripture so that we may truly be edified and bring glory and praise to your name? We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it was a couple years ago, and Paige and I and the kids were, were playing in our, our backyard, as we normally do on a late summer, early fall day. Uh, and we have a row of dogwood trees that, kind of, you know, that are right beside our garage. 
and uh, all the leaves on this dogwood tree were, were red. And as I was walking by, I, I saw something just neon green, something so bright, something out of place, it didn't belong there. And upon further investigation, we found, you know, not, it wasn't just an inchworm. I mean, this was the biggest caterpillar I've ever seen. This thing was a mammoth. And so we kind of watched it for a while and just thought, what if, you know, we've got a little bug box. Let's, let's grab it and see what happens over the next couple days. So we've got this little bug box, and it's got a door on the front. And we opened it up, and we collected it with some sticks and leaves and closed the door. And um, no sooner had we done that, but by the next morning, it had spun itself into its own cocoon. And so we just thought, oh, this is going to be awesome. Let's, let's see what ends up happening. Well, here's what ended up happening. You know, we kept it on the kitchen counter for a while, and then you know, a couple of days after that, it got moved into the hallway, and then a couple of days after it was in the hallway, it moved into the kids' room, and after the kids' room, it got moved to the bookshelf, and a couple of days after that, it got put in the top of the closet, and we totally forgot about it. Three or four months go by. And then one day, Paige is you know, in the kids' room, you know, cleaning up, uh, doing normal things in there, and she hears a noise from the top of the closet, and she did what every normal woman does. When you're by yourself and you hear a noise in the closet, you totally freak out. And she did, uh, until she realized, it's that darn moth. That's what it is. And she pulled it out of the top of the closet, and what she found, you know, wasn't just, you know, this, this brown little creature. This, this moth was, and I've got, you know, I've got pretty big hands. The wingspan on this thing was almost from my pinky to my thumb. And we actually had a hard time getting it out of the, the bug box because the door was so small. But once we finally got it out and it opened its wings, it was as big as my hand. Um, and I had to look it up to find out what kind of moth this was. It's a, a polyphemus. It's a, it's a type of a silk moth. And if you've seen the movie The Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is on top of Orthanc Tower, right, and he, he grabs a moth and he whispers to it, this is that moth. It's got the little defense mechanism on the, on the wings, the little eyes that look like eyes, you know, to protect itself from predators. Um, and we just kind of sat there, you know, amazed at, you know, at what happened with this thing, the change that happened. And, you know... What was most amazing to us was while remaining true to itself, I mean, this was the same creature. This wasn't two separate creatures. Um, It was the same thing. Uh, But over the process of four months, it could undergo such a dramatic change from this little green neon caterpillar to this beautiful, incredible moth. Uh, And we love talking about change. We love talking about metamorphosis when when it's happening outside of us, when it's happening in nature, when it's happening to a, a caterpillar and a moth. And they're the ones going through the pain. They're going through the ones going through the discomfort to see the beauty that comes out of it. But when we start talking about change as it relates to us, we kind of start squirming in our seats. We get a little uncomfortable. When the spotlight's not on you know, a moth and a caterpillar and it's on us and we start talking about our change, we start to get a little unnerved. Ever thought about that? Why, why, why does change bother us so much? A couple things. You know, change, um, it reminds us of, of, of many things, but one in particular is, is change involves risk. You know, whether it's you know, changing the paint of your house and a room, rearranging furniture, getting that pixie haircut, you know that there's a risk involved. Because if you get that pixie haircut, it's pretty short, right? And you've got to stick with it for a long time. And if you have a pixie haircut in here, you're rocking it. You're doing great. Fear not. Right? But there's risk involved in change, right? We avoid change. We're uncomfortable with it, too, because risk reminds us that, or excuse me, change reminds us that we're not in control. Right? As, as far as we've come as a human race, we still cannot control every outcome. And for the control freaks in the room, that, that unnerves us, right? If we can't control outcomes, we get anxious. We start to worry, and we can't sleep. We don't like change. We like predictability. Well, we don't like change, too, because um, change is painful, right? That for sale sign in your best friend's front yard, that hurts. Change hurts. 
And so we're looking at a story this morning of a man who is, um, in, in no small sense of the word, undergoing a change, a true metamorphosis, the same person from Saul to Paul. And when Calvin talks about this passage in his commentary, he says, you know, here's what we see truly metamorphosizing, I think I just made up a word, uh, in the life of Paul. He goes from wolf to sheep to shepherd. And really what this passage is doing for us, is it's, it's signaling to us something about the Christian life. And that's this, the Christian life is a life of change. All right, And this is not just something we see in Paul. This is something Jesus even championed himself in the New Testament, right? And we've all heard this verse. When Jesus calls his disciples, what did he say? Leave your nets. Come follow me. And, what, and, and how's, how does the rest go? I will make you fishers of men. The beginning of that phrase, I will make you. That makes us uncomfortable. What are you going to do with me, Lord? If I give you the blank contract, what are you, you going to do with me? I'm scared of change. What this passage is reminding us is, is that as, as children of God, uh, life is about change. Christian life is about change. It's about metamorphosis. Not just this one-time occurrence, but a, a lifelong occurrence. And if you've been in the church a long time, this should remind you of one of our most precious doctrines, and it's the doctrine of sanctification. It's the process of becoming more and more like Christ. We are always changing, always growing. However, if you haven't been in the church for a long time, and maybe you haven't really placed your stake in the ground yet, maybe you're, you're still thinking about things, um, does this passage have anything for you? And I say a hearty yes. Let this passage for you kind of serve as a billboard. Um, yes, God is going to call his children to change, and he's going to tell us, exactly what that change looks like. And that's actually a mercy and a kindness. Yes, life is going to change for children of God, but in His mercy and His kindness, He's going to tell us exactly what it's going to, what it's going to look like. So with that in mind, um, if you're keeping notes, here are the three points. When we come into fellowship with God, He is truly going to change us. And, and what is He going to change? Well, first, He's going to change our beliefs. Uh, second, He's going to change our mission. And then third, He's going to change our methods. So He's going to change our beliefs, our mission, and our methods. Well, let's start with the first one, beliefs. Why is he going to change our beliefs? Um, and, and, and think about this just for a moment. When it comes to our, our beliefs, our, our beliefs are, are kind of like the hub for all of our actions. The reason why we're not talking about our actions first is because you do what you are, right? It's the reason why you vote the way you do. It's the reason why you love what you love. It's because you have this value. You have something in your heart that you hold higher than anything else, Right? And the first thing that Jesus is going to change in Paul, and the first thing he's going to change in us, is what we truly believe. He's going to change one of our core values. And as a child of God, he's going to put us all on the same page. And so the question is, is well, what exactly is he going to change? What is this new truth? And this new truth is our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Who is Jesus Christ? And this is a question that has plagued the church since the early days. And a question that all of us have to wrestle with. And we can't be grandfathered out of this one. It's something we all have to have to question ourselves. Who is this Jesus? Our temptation is to kind of lump him into the category with like Mother Teresa Gandhi, great teacher, loved his ethic, loved what he did for his community. But anything kind of beyond that, we just go, uh. And as we look at this passage, Paul's view of Jesus was very similar. Remember, Paul has a very deep and very extensive religious resume. Okay, He is the Pharisee of Pharisees. And he is in this religious group called the Judaizers. Uh, and on the surface, the Judaizers, you know, loved the Torah. They had this Torah piety, as, as one writer calls it. Um, experts in the Old Testament law. But really, when you kind of peel back the onion layers, even though it's, 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 it's clothed 
and, and cloaked in biblical language. It's really a religion uh, about moralism. And it's, it's, it's about self-promotion. It has actually very little to do with God and more to do with the individual. And this is the group of people that, that Paul is a part of. And something happens. Um, we, we have every reason to believe that, that Paul and Jesus were contemporaries. We don't know if they ever met apart from this moment here. But they were you know, doing ministry at the same time, so to speak. So no doubt Paul heard of Jesus and heard of his teachings. And here's what Paul heard. There's a man coming out of the woodworks, coming out of the sticks. He has a mother. Her name's Mary. And we're having issues with his dad. We don't know exactly what's happening here, but he's been adopted by this guy named Joseph. He walks into a synagogue, and he, and he opens the scroll, and he gets to Isaiah, and he reads this prophecy about this man who is to come. And Jesus has the gall to say, this prophecy has been fulfilled today in your hearing. This guy that Isaiah is talking about, it's me. Consider this fulfilled. No Judaizer would have said that. No Pharisee would have said that. And so this man out of the woodworks comes, comes out of, of nowhere and says, what you've been waiting for and what you've been hoping for all this time has come to fruition. I am here. I am that one. And what we see Paul doing and what we see the Judaizers doing here in, in the first century is, is, is identifying Jesus and his followers and going, this is not Judaism. This is something entirely different, right? And, and Jesus has already kind of expressed his, his discontent with the temple. Remember what he did with the tables? He wasn't mad at the money changers. Who was he mad at? He was mad at the chief priests and the scribes because they were keeping the Gentiles from praying. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, and, and Paul, their religion is being threatened. And what do you do with a virus? You contain it and you kill it. And so that's what Paul is doing. He is, you know, through, through terror and through persecution, he's going after, you know, Jesus is, has already ascended. Uh, he, now he's going after his followers. We're, we're going to contain this, this sect and we're going we're to we're destroy it and wipe it from the face of the earth. And then something happens. Somebody shows up. And it's not... It's not flesh. It's not blood. It's not someone walking along the road. How does Jesus show up here? He shows up, you know, we, we, let me back up. When we, when we studied the transfiguration a couple months ago, we, we got to see Jesus in a glorified state. And it was momentary. It was just for a couple moments, and then what happens? He went back to the incarnate flesh and blood Jesus. What Paul sees here on the road, here in verses 4 and verse 5, is the glorified the permanently transcended Jesus, permanently transfigured Jesus, Jesus in his final state, Jesus as he will be uh, for, for the rest of eternity. And when Paul asks, who are you? Who am I face to face with? Who is this glorious being in front of me? Do you hear what Jesus says? He says, it's, it's me. It's Jesus, the son of Mary. And at this moment, what we're seeing is we're seeing the dots kind of connect in, in Paul's mind. This man who is this leader of this religious sect is also the person standing before me glorified and transcendent. Those two are one. And it's a brain buster. It, 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 it unhinges our mind because how can, how can you be both the son of man but also the son of God? It doesn't fit in our head. But that's the way he exists. And Paul realizes it for the first time. He, Jesus was to him just this teacher of this sect, but now who is he? He is the glorified, second person in the Trinity, part of the Godhead. 
And that's really when we look at, you know, when we're changing our beliefs, when we're asking ourselves the question, what is the Lord really going to do to us? The first thing he's going to do is overhaul our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And if we stop with Jesus simply at his humanity and we don't go any further, that's a half Jesus and it's a half truth and it's a half gospel. It's all or nothing. Jesus Christ is, is not just the son of man. He's the son of God. And, and I noticed this too. Typically we try to save these for the end of the sermon, but it, I'm going to put it on the front end. Do you see how Jesus is confronting Paul? Let me ask the question this way. You know, parents or, you know, or, or babysitters in the room, if you have care and an oversight of a child, what happens to you if someone comes between you and that child? What happens to you, Right? You're at a one, and you turn up beast mode to about a nine and a half, right? If someone comes between you and your child, you go into protective mode. How does God react? How does God behave when someone comes between him and his child? What does he do here in this passage? You would think at, uh, this, is, this is a great moment for Sodom and Gomorrah part two. You know, smite him, almighty smiter, and let's see the smoke. How does Jesus respond? To the, to the persecutor of his children. You hear it? Look at it again. Verse 4 and verse 5. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul. Saul. Which, incidentally, is how prophets of old were called by their name twice in a way that Paul could understand, right? He's using Old Testament patterns here. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. What would you have done there? We've got to sit in that for just a minute. What would you have done? This is why the Old Testament says and sings refrain after refrain, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. How does God posture himself towards those outside the church, towards those who persecute the church? He does so first and foremost by means of grace. He goes into grace mode, not beast mode, kindness. We need to see that on the front end. Not only is he going to change our beliefs, our understanding about who Jesus is, but he's also going to change our mission. You know, what is our life all about? What are we going to be doing from here on out? Um, many of you remember back in the 70s a, um, a folk singer by the name of Cat Stevens, right? Well, somewhere in, in the late 70s, Cat Stevens had you know, a, a conversion experience, a breakthrough, and he changed religions. He, he, he converted to Islam. And so what happens when you change your, your core values, what you truly believe? What happens? You, you change your behavior, right? Your mission changes. What you do changes. And so what did he do? He changed his name, right? He's not Cat Stevens anymore. He's uh, Yusef Islam, right? And, you know, he went from the cats in the cradle to, you know, peace train, right? Big change, big, big change in his life. Same is true for Paul. The same is true for us. Uh, two things to kind of get your get our minds wrapped around this. Notice, notice who the, the commanding officer here is as the story begins. Paul's not out here on his own initiative. Who's he taking orders from? Who's calling the shots? This is the chief priest, Caiaphas, right? He, he sends him, and, and Caiaphas has the power to give him these decrees and these edicts to collect the Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem. Paul's not acting on his own. And what we need to see here for a minute with this, with this man-made religion called Judaism, although it looks, smells, and feels like Christianity in so many ways, and it's really not, it's this religion of, of self-promotion, right? He's taking orders from a human being. He's taking orders from a man. And what are these orders? What is he supposed to do? Persecute, round up, terrorize these people. What is terror? What is persecution? 
It's self-promotion that's left unchecked plus time. Right? You ever seen yourself get explosive and angry and frustrated? And you ever thought, I I now know why road rage exists. What is it? It It's self-promotion. Something in you is being threatened and it's left unchecked. Add to it time and what happens? You get angry and you want somebody to pay for it. Right? You want to make yourself look better at someone else's expense. And that's what's going on here with Paul and with Caiaphas. Self-promotion. But notice how the story ends. Um, Look with me at verse 6. Just in a matter of a few verses, Paul goes from taking orders from Caiaphas to taking orders from Jesus Christ, who is the true head of the church. That's what we celebrate. Uh, Verse 6. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And then we fast forward. It's not in your bulletin, but verse 15 Christ actually tells Paul what he's going to be doing for the rest of his life. He said, your job, your new mission, is not to persecute the church. It's not to chase these people down and round them up. Actually, your new job is to take this gospel and present it to the Gentiles, to the people outside of the church. You, the Pharisee, you, the zealot, you're going to the sticks. You're going to the woods. And you're going to be my my ambassador there. And the question... We ask at this point, well, then what's his message? What is he going to say? And get this. This is probably my favorite part about this, this passage. Notice how, notice how Acts, Acts, 1, excuse me, Acts 9 starts in verse 1. We have Paul, and, and the verb here being used is, is this Greek word, katalambano. Uh, and and, and it's, it, it's capturing this idea of seizing and arresting someone. And that's what Paul is doing. He is, he's going out and seizing and arresting these people who belong to the way, these followers, these disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul loves wordplay. Um, fast forward a little bit to the letter that Paul sends to the church in Philippi. He's talking to them. He's doing what the Lord called him to do. He's taking the gospel to the nations and to the Gentiles. And he's sharing with them the gospel, the good news. And what is the good news? Listen to what he says in, in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. And what we can't see in the English here is that same verb, katalambano. You see what Paul is saying to Philippi? I spent the first season of my life seizing and arresting Christians, and then something happened. The Lord seized and arrested me. I got caught. He decided upon me. He happened upon me, and he showed me mercy, and he showed me grace, and he arrested me with it. What is he sharing? This good news that self-promoting moralists can be forgiven and that they actually make great Christians, great followers of Christ. What's the last thing he changes? Well, he's going to change our methods. Not just what we believe, um, not just what we're going to be doing, but, but the manner in which we're going to do it, the mode, the method. And, and notice how, how Paul begins. What is Paul's mode of operation? What is his kind of protocol? It's fear and it's persecution, right? We get that. We've already talked about that. He's got zeal for it. But as I've been looking at Paul over this last week, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, Paul reminds me a lot of the Kennedys, okay? And here's why. When we think of the Kennedys, we think, you know, power, influence, money, good looks, influential. Paul is a New Testament Kennedy, He's got it all. He, he is, he's the, the full package, so to speak. And, and how do we know that? 
Well, he, he talks about this in, in later letters, but he reminds us that he's, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And the question is, is why is that significant? Well, after, um, after Solomon's reign in the Old Testament, uh, God's people were divided. And there was a northern tribe, and there was a southern tribe. And the northern tribe apostatized. They left the sacrificial system. They left the Lord, and they went and bowed to their idols. But there were several tribes who stayed true, who stayed faithful, even in the midst of the apostasy. And Benjamin was one of them. And what Paul here is saying is, is I've been on the good side for a long time. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I can trace it all the way back to him. But not only that, he's, uh, he has extensive qualifications Right? He's a student of Gamaliel. We don't exactly know who he was, but um, something to be bragged about, uh, apparently. He's, he's the prized student. He's, he's incredibly intelligent, incredibly smart, deputized by, by Caiaphas, the high priest. He's got backing. He's got financial backing. He's got authority behind him. Right? A very, very influential person. He, he's, he's coming from a posture of strength. He's coming from a, a posture of privilege. Right? And again, notice the, the irony here in this passage. That's not how the story ends. Look with me uh, at this new mode, this mode of weakness in verse 8 and 9. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The story begins with Paul leading this, this, this band of, of terrorists, this terrorist cell to go capture Christians. And he's in front. And he's in charge. And by the time the story happens and the Lord truly changes his understanding about Jesus and tells him what he's going to do, he reminds him that your, your methods have to change too. It's no longer from a posture of strength. It's no longer from a posture of privilege. It's no longer from a posture of, of intellect. It's now a posture of weakness. You were leading these men in persecution. Now you too are going to be led. And you're going to be led to Damascus where you will have healing for your blindness. And this is a great lesson, not just for Paul, but for, but for all of us. Weakness is the new strength in the kingdom of God. And what we're not saying here is, is this is not permission for us to be passive, to be static and just kind of stay where we are and just kind of expect good things to happen to us. No, that's not what we're saying. Are you saying we don't have to use our gifts anymore? No, Paul did. But now it's out of a posture of, of weakness. And this isn't the first time we've seen this or, or heard this before. You will have strength and weakness. Somebody else championed this. Somebody else coined this. And it was Jesus himself, right? Remember, the climate that, that Paul and Jesus are in is, is Judaism, but it's under Roman oppression, right? And the Judaizers are waiting for this warrior, this, this Psalm 2 guy, this, right, this guy who's going to come with an iron scepter and he's going to dash the kings like pottery. I mean, they're, they're looking for, you know, Maximus, Right? And suddenly this guy comes out of the woodworks, not what they expect. And how does Jesus show up? Does he show up on a horse? Does he show up sword brandished, ready to fight? How does he show up? Sit in this irony for a minute. He showed up as a baby. The second person of the Trinity, the one who has always preexisted and who will always exist into eternity, shows up in the form of a child. And he doesn't put on robes and rings and crowns. He wraps himself in leftover garments. Philippians says he emptied himself of his glory. He took on flesh. He became one of us. He's showing us, and, and he even tells us later in his ministry, that I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. What's the new method? What's the new protocol? What's the new modus operandi of this thing called Christianity? It's not from a posture of strength. It's actually through weakness. And it's actually through service. This is why Paul would later say, 
to the church in 1 Corinthians, you know, to the perishing, the cross is foolishness. It doesn't make sense because it's weak. Weak is not very heroic. And he would later say in 2 Corinthians, in talking about his strength, my strength is made perfect in what? In weakness. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. He later illustrates this too when he employs himself in tent making. Pharisees don't do that. You don't do that with the kind of privilege uh, that he had, with the up kind of upbringing that he had. You don't go into tent making. But he's proving the point. The new strength is weakness in God's economy. A couple of things I want to close with uh, this morning, and it's something I've already stated, but this is really where I want us to camp for the rest of our time together this morning. Um, self-promoting moralists make great Christians. They make great saints. They make great missionaries. They make great followers of Christ. And the question is, is well, why? Why do they? When we look back at this passage, um, who decides upon who? Who happened upon who in this passage? Because the way we kind of typically think about conversion and we think about you know, a relationship with Christ is we just kind of come along and go, yeah, there's some bad things that need fixing. And let me go find the remedy. And I think the remedy is Jesus Christ. Hey, I found you. Gotcha. And I don't know if you did, but I grew up singing this song, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. And while there's some truth in this song, um, Red Mountain did another version of the song, and perhaps some of you have heard it, where they changed the words just a little bit to kind of capture what's going on here in Acts chapter 9. They changed the song to this. It's, I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I turned my back. I turned my back. Until what? Until something happened upon him, until he was arrested, until he was literally seized by Christ. Who is really deciding upon who here? Is it not Christ deciding upon Paul? Isn't that the Lord Jesus Christ deciding and happening upon him in a way that he can understand and with grace and with mercy? Is it not his initiative? And the question is we talk about, you know, us in the 21st century. Where do we see Christ? Because all of us haven't seen him as, as Paul saw him. All of us haven't seen him transfigured like Peter, James, and John. Where do we find Christ? Where does he happen to us? And where do we come face to face with his humanity and his glory? And you're holding it in your right hand. It's in his word. And so as he's calling to Saul, Saul, sometimes through his word, actually the Lord is calling to you and to your name. This could be actually your Damascus road episode, event. And we hope so. We, we spent, um, and by we, I mean the officers, the elders and the deacons, we got together this weekend for an officer's retreat and we just played golf. It was great. It was awesome. Just kidding. We did not do that. We got together and we prayed. And then we prayed some more. And then we prayed some more. And then we prayed for each other. And then we talked about the church and, and some of her needs and what we can do to help. And, and one of our requests was, was for this very thing. Uh, was for conversions. Uh, in, our, in our city. And not because that's cool and not because we get paid more if that happens. That's not why we were doing it. It's because no one happens upon Christ. Christ happens upon you. And to embrace this, this, this new strength, which is now weakness, we realize that we can, we can preach and we can say everything right, but unless the Spirit 
of God happens upon you and wakes you up and opens your eyes, we labor in vain. And that's what we ask the Holy Spirit for. And we ask for numbers. We said, Lord, make it so. Grant conversions in this city and in this church. We'd love to see more adult baptisms. We would love to see that happen. How does the Lord do that? He does that through uh, His Word. But for the rest of you, um, I thought, I grew up in, um, in high school. I split high school you know, half in Texas, half in St. Louis, Missouri. And when I was in Texas, I, had, you know, I took Spanish. Uh, and I took Spanish from a, a Hispanic. Um, it, was her, it was her native tongue. And you would think, you know, taking Spanish from Hispanic was probably, you know, just robust and it was just lively. I mean, she had the accents down pat. I learned a lot um, uh, in, from, about Spanish from her. And, and then I moved to, to St. Louis, you know, the Midwest, you know, farming country. And my new Spanish teacher, her name was Joni Vanderpool. And, and she was about as Anglo as it comes. I mean, red hair, I mean, just, just as fair-skinned, um, not an ounce of, you know, um, Hispanic blood in, 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 her, in her body. And what I actually found out was I actually learned more Spanish from her. And it took me a while to realize, you know, why did I thrive under her instead of, you know, you know Miss Garcia, you know, the, the Hispanic? Why, why was I thriving under the other person? And it was this. It's because, you know, Miss Vanderpool, she had to learn the language too. She was a student once as well. And here's, here's what I want you to see with that. Some of us, when we look at our past and we look at our history, uh, maybe there's just a, a brief episode or maybe it's, it's long chapters. We have long chapters where we would say self-promotion did that. Moralism bought in. I was in. And, and maybe, you know, you, you put it upon yourself. Maybe someone else put it upon you. Maybe it was a parent, relative. Or maybe it was an organization that you were under that forced it upon you. And when you think about it, you're half embarrassed because you're just going, that is not the gospel. That is not the good news. And half of you is embarrassed by it, and the other half of you is angry. Anytime it ever comes up, that little temple, that little vein in your temple pops out, and you're angry, and you're frustrated. Because you didn't have the wherewithal back then to go, okay, this is moralism, this is self-promotion, this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is something different. And you're angry, and you're frustrated. And you feel like, there are chapters in my life that are just a waste. I wish I could just kind of forget them and move on. And if that's you this morning, take comfort from Paul. The moralist of moralists, the one who is all about self-promotion, they make great evangelists. They make great saints. Why? Because the gospel is not our native tongue. The gospel has to be learned. It has to, it has to happen to us. The good news has to be brought to us by someone else. And the reason why Paul was such a great teacher and the reason why Romans is such a powerful and beautiful and influential book in the church history is because Paul knew what the gospel wasn't. Better than anybody else, he could smell it, he could see it, he could feel it. Quicker than anybody else. And when, it, when he smelled it creeping into the church, he had a letter at your front door saying, don't do it. Don't go back to the old ways. Don't do it. That's not the gospel. Remember what the gospel is. And if that's a part of your history this morning, don't be embarrassed by it. And don't let the anger rule you. Actually, recovering moralists and recovering self-promoters, you make great missionaries. You make great Christians. It's just the encouragement now is to do so from a posture of grace and a posture of mercy. We as a church, we need you. Help, help us keep us out of the ditches because our, 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 our protocol, our natural tendency is to always go back into moralism, always go back into self-promotion. We need people to go, no, 
hit the brakes. You diminish Christ when you do that and you promote self. And that's not what we're about. When the gospel is not your native tongue and you have to learn it, um, you become a very gifted and a very blessed evangelist. May it be so of, of all of us. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, help us um, to embrace this paradox well. To thrive, to love our weakness, and to find true strength in it. May we say at the end of our days that any success we've had is because, not because of our education, not because of our intellect, not because of the synapses firing in our brain, but it's because uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit has decided to show Himself through us, through our gifts, for His glory and for His edification. O oh Lord, make it so. Help us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.